Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the New York auctions, the radical art of Central Eastern Europe under communism, and a Terry Adkins work chosen by fashion designer Grace Wales Bonner at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Tim Schneider, the art newspaper's acting art market editor, joins me to discuss two weeks of major auctions in New York and whether they've calmed a jittery art market. An exhibition exploring radical art made in six countries under communist rule in Central Eastern Europe has just opened at the Walker Art Centre in Minneapolis. It's called Multiple Realities, Experimental Art in the Eastern Bloc, 1960s to 1980s. And I talked to its curator, Pavel Pisch, about the show and its relevance to contemporary geopolitics. And this episode's work of the week is Terry Adkins' Last Trumpet. The sculpture installation is part of the latest edition of Artist's Choice, a regular series of shows exploring the collection of the Museum of Modern Art in New York, selected by notable figures outside the museum. This latest iteration is called Spirit Movers and has been chosen by the fashion designer Grace Wells Bonner. I talked to Michelle Quo, a curator of painting and sculpture at the museum, who's worked with Wells Bonner on the show. It's your last chance to take advantage of our latest subscription offer. Get a subscription to the art newspaper with full digital access for £1, $1 or €1 for three months. The offer's available until this Sunday, 19th of November. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and to our sister podcast, A Brush With, which returns next week. And do leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, the crucial two-week November auction season in New York has just come to an end. Last week, we saw the sale of the collection of the late patron of the Whitney Museum of American Art, Emily Fisher-Landau, in the big single-owner auction of the season at Sotheby's on the 8th of November. And we saw Christie's 21st century evening sale on the 7th and its 20th century evening sale on the 9th. This week, Philip's big evening sales on Tuesday and on Wednesday, Sotheby's now and contemporary sales. As always, it's a key indicator of the wider picture in the art market and I spoke to Tim Schneider, our acting art market editor, about what we've learned. As you'll hear, I spoke to Tim before the Sotheby's sales on Wednesday. More on those after this conversation. Tim, I'd like to take you back to the distant days of spring this year and that season in auctions was seen as a bit of a wobble and it's interesting in one of the pieces that you wrote there's an idea that the estimates were too far beyond organic demand and that was part of the problem. Can you explain a bit about what that means? Sure. So when people who don't live and breathe the art market think about auctions, they just think about the competition that's happening in the room when bidding is live to actually buy the work. What they don't think about so much is that there is another competition that happens, which is the competition among the auction houses to actually get the works from the owners for the opportunity to sell them in the first place. And in order to do that, the auction houses have to compete against each other, oftentimes by telling the owners of these works what they want to hear in terms of what they're actually worth and what they're likely to fetch once they come to auction. And when you go through a period that is particularly frothy, as the past few years leading up to this spring had been... People who own works that they know are valuable can sometimes get a little disconnected from 
reality in terms of what they're actually worth. And so in order to win the business in the first place, I think the auction houses had, in some cases at least, gotten to a place where they needed to basically promise the world to these collectors in terms of what their works were going to sell for. And you do that enough times, and eventually the market is going to catch up to it, and there's going to kind of be no floor beneath your feet when you've been walking out on these kinds of expectations for a while. Got you. Okay. So you add that in to the fact that we have geopolitical turmoil in the world and you get quotes from people like Robert Manley from Phillips saying that everybody was a bit nervous ahead of this season. Was that reflected ahead of the auctions and conversations you've been having with people in the market? For the most part, yes. I think when people were being candid or at least relatively candid with me, I think that they were generally saying, listen, we have reason to believe that things will be better than they were in the spring, but we don't have any illusions that we're going to be right back to the rollicking good times of the fall of 2022 or something like that. It's just the way that these things work. There are a lot of tensions, as you're saying, in the wider world, in the economy in particular, and especially after you come off one auction season that was a bit of a system shock, it kind of cows people a little bit, and it makes them even more nervous than they might otherwise have been. So I think it's safe to say that, yes, there was a fair bit of anxiety coming into these two weeks. One thing that we're monitoring constantly at the art newspaper is the extent to which the situation in Gaza is being explicitly talked about in terms of the market, in terms of museums, relationships with artists and so on. Has anyone this week, or indeed last week, talked to you about that particular situation and its effect on the market? I think it's basically the last thing that anyone wants to talk about in the market. It's this sort of weird, unspoken shadow that's hanging over everything. So you'll hear a lot of references to geopolitical tensions, or the turmoil in the world, or... There are a lot of bad things happening out there right now. And everyone understands that the central thing that people are talking about when they make those kinds of euphemisms is the Israel-Hamas conflict, but nobody wants to talk about it directly. It's been very, very difficult to get anybody on the record about it in any kind of a substantive way. So it just becomes another one of those things that is understood to be in the ether, but also in a lot of ways shall not be spoken of, especially because it feels, frankly, a little grubby for a lot of people to bring in what we all know is basically an ongoing tragedy of tremendous scale in the context of people being worried whether or not their Picasso is going to sell for $110 million or $150 million. It just kind of makes the whole thing seem a little gross. Indeed, that's very well put. Let's talk about the auctions then. One of the intriguing things reading the reports is that there's a a sort of agreement about modest returns and things doing exactly what they needed to do and modestly affirming was a term used by Judd Tully to describe one of the auctions there's a sense in which no one's really going to remember this auction season particularly are they I don't necessarily think so I think that they will remember certain moments from it but by and large it's not going to be 
a historic season. Now, we should caveat this by saying that you and I are recording this interview the morning of November the 15th, so Sotheby's still has two evening sales left in this auction cycle before it's technically complete, but by this point, I think that we have enough information that barring something truly unbelievable happening at Sotheby's tonight, and I mean on the level of a wormhole opens up in the sale room and money just starts pouring in from an alternate dimension from some source that we don't know about. Like, we have enough information to be able to say that good enough is gonna kind of be the phrase that we use to think about this auction season. And once we get past it, there will probably not be all that much looking back on it. Right. The interesting thing about it is that it seems to me that there's lots of inconsistency in the sense that you could have predicted, for instance, that lots of the emerging artists that we've seen getting stellar prices in the last couple of years, but had seemed to waver a bit, have been doing well in some auctions, for instance, and more reliable blue chip artists have been doing less well. You know, a Basquiat from 1981 sold within its estimate, you know, that sort of thing. So the things that one wants to sort of predict don't necessarily come true. Would, would that be fair? I think that it's a little more complex than that. Essentially, you're gesturing towards the right thing. These types of predictions tend to be talked about in very broad terms. Again, there is this notion that in an uncertain economic or geopolitical climate, there is this grand retreat to safety that happens in the auction market, meaning all of a sudden buyers who previously were willing to punch one another in the throat for the opportunity to pay 10 times the low estimate for a 30-year-old artist are suddenly going to say, oh, no, 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 all I want to buy is Claude Monet and Gerhard Richter. That's not really the way that it works. I think that what we've seen, not just this season, but even dating back to the spring, and frankly in several auctions in between, is that it's not enough to just say, okay, well, we have a sale that has a bunch of blue chip artists in it, this will be safe. It really matters which works they are. It really matters what the works are estimated at. The market is just more complex and smarter, frankly, than it's often talked about. So you're right. There are definitely some, I think, relatively major disappointments that we've seen this season that are for artists who are in museum collections around the world. But we've also seen some really tremendous successes by some of those same calibers of artists. And so if you're not looking at it on that more nuanced level, I don't think that you're going to have a lot of success in really understanding what's happening out there right now. So that's what people at the auction houses mean then when they say it's a real market which I think is David Galperin's term, or a collector's market. So in other words, they're effectively saying it's about connoisseurs to a certain degree. Yeah, I think that's right. One thing that continually kind of fascinates me when people talk about the art market is that when we're in a really frothy part of the business cycle, you have all these people who've been in the business for a long time who will say, oh my God, there's so much speculation out there right now. There's all these people coming in. They're way overpaying for things. I really wish we could get to a place where the market was more stable and more real. Then, fast forward to a more stable, more modest part of the business cycle, 
And you will hear a lot of those same people say, oh my God, sales really aren't what we want them to be. We really need to try to find more people to come in and pay real money for this stuff. I'm not really feeling great about the way that things are right now. And meanwhile, I'm standing in the middle being like, you kind of can't have it both ways. Like, you you can't be mad at the speculators when (laughs) things are really good and then say when things aren't so good, wow, really wish we had some speculative money. Like, it's, it's sort of an irrational stance to try to do both of those things. But right now, we are in that second part of the business cycle. So I think that people who who get it will say, yeah, it's a real market. It's a more organic market. You're getting a better sense of what people who actually are not just going to be in this for the times when the money is good. We're getting a sense of what they want and what their price levels are. And I think that that's an important thing. It just doesn't really feel good in the moment in a lot of cases. Right. That's really interesting. Should we drill down and have a look at some of the sort of big lots in a way? So the biggest lot is the Picasso, which was part of the Emily Fisher Landau sale, which was, I guess, the big sort of single collection sale of of the season. And those have got a lot of attention recently. Lots of people are saying this is the way to go. These are the things that we're going to see again and again being the big hit auctions. Overall, that auction was not as perhaps as stellar as some might have hoped for, right? But that was still the biggest lot of the season so far. Absolutely. And I think that that lot is really interesting because in a way it is a microcosm of the entire season so far. So as you said, it was the star lot of the Emily Fisher Landau evening sale. Sotheby's had it estimated to sell for in excess of $120 million. So I covered that sale and I was there in the room and bidding lasted about three minutes and the final hammer price for the work was $121 million. So it was just over what we wanted, which is great in one sense, because it means that the expectations that the auction house had were pretty accurate in terms of what the market would bear. But if you were hoping that this lot was going to soar to several million dollars over what was expected and really become the kind of subject of a bidding war that we tend to think of when we think of really successful auctions, it didn't do that at all. Again, it was just an example of a work doing just enough to be successful, even though it was doing that at the highest possible level. Yeah, it's, it's really curious. I mean, just as somebody who loves that period of Picasso, I'm really conscious speaking to that point that you mentioned about it really is the absolute best of particular artists works that are doing well that actually in terms of 1932 Picassos it's not the greatest work by him featuring Marie Therese there are many works of that period that are better and I see yes look it's an extraordinary work by Picasso but it really isn't the best of the best of that period and that's what you're saying that that in a way to really hit the high notes at the moment it does need to be kind of the best of the best yeah I think that that's true I mean I had one advisor tell me that Essentially, they thought that this picture would have done better maybe two or three years ago than it did today, and that might have been partly because of circumstance. Mm. It might have been partly just because of, again, the place we were at in the business cycle because it is very sort of auction-friendly work. It's very bright. It's very poppy. So it's all these things that somebody who wasn't a connoisseur would immediately gravitate towards, but this isn't the moment where people who aren't connoisseurs are really driving the market anymore. So it may just not have been the perfect moment. 
But there were several pieces in the Christie's 20th Century Evening Sale, which seemed to me to be exactly the kind of works which are doing well and, and indeed fetched record prices. I'm thinking like the Diebenkorn, which was a beautiful Diebenkorn, right plumb in his best period, just before he started getting to Ocean Park and having come out of that figurative phase. And then a great Joe Mitchell, early Joe Mitchell, 1959, a really absolutely cracking abstract painting untitled by her. So those are exactly the kind of, you know, absolute best period works by really major artists and and they made the records yeah they did and when you're analyzing these sales usually the way that it works is that if the very top lots do well then the sale as a whole does well it's a classic sort of normally you say 20 percent of the material is making 80 percent of the money i mean that's like not exactly the right proportions but the general idea is there so as you're saying those types of masterpieces or near masterpieces were pretty well received in that Christie sale. And yet, if you look at the hammer total for the entire sale that evening, it came in about 4% over the total low estimate. So even though you had these acknowledged great works making very good prices for the most part, the sale as a whole still didn't really impress in a macro sense in the way that I think people were hoping that this season's best sales might. Right. And it seems to me that the Phillips sale, which was Tuesday, 14th of November, is also a microcosm to a certain degree. And in terms of their historic sales, it's right up there with some of the best totals they've ever made. And yet still, there was this feeling it was more about stability than a sort of auction that everyone's going to be talking about. Yes. And on top of that, I think that it really was another moment that showed how nervous people were, in a way. One other thing that I think is important to talk about this season is the prevalence of guarantees, and specifically third-party guarantees. Like, I don't know how much auction minutiae we need to get into. (laughs) We've talked about guarantees before, but just remind people what they are. (laughs) I'm sure. I'll try to do this in the most brief, high-level way we can. But going back to the idea of auction houses having to make enticing promises to collectors to win works in the first place. What they tend to do at the very highest level is to make what's called a guaranteed minimum price to a collector, meaning the auction house says, hey, we really want to be able to sell this painting. We will offer to pay you X amount, regardless of what it does in the room. So its performance is basically already settled with you because you're going to get a check from us regardless. So they go out and they do that. And then What has ended up happening over the course of the past era of the auction market is that the auction houses have increasingly gone out to third parties to try to offset their own risk that they've incurred by making these guarantees in the first place. So then they will go out to other people and say, hey, listen, we committed to effectively buy this work from this collector that we're going to sell. Would you be interested in making an advance bid on it? And if you do, you will either get to share in the upside if somebody else outbids you, or alternatively, if you're the top bidder, if that advance bid that you make is the top bid, then you will get the work at a discount. So if you're trying to get a a rough sense of just how nervous the auction houses are about how these sales are going to do after they've made guarantees to the consigners, looking at the third-party guarantees is a great way to do that. And the Phillips sale was in two parts. The first part was 30 works from the 
Triton Collection Foundation, this Dutch nonprofit. And Phillips had made a house guarantee on the entire group of 30 works. And they then went out and got third-party guarantors for all 30 works. And that was the biggest proportion of third-party guarantees I think that I can recall seeing in one of these sales. And it managed to do that by beating what was a week earlier the biggest proportion I had seen of guarantees to house sales, which was that (laughs) in the Emily Fisher Landau sale, which, again, Sotheby's had made guarantees on every lot for, Sotheby's went out and got third-party backers for 35 of the 41 lots in that sale. So, again, there just wasn't much risk left over at that point. And I think it really starts to show that, ultimately, people were anxious about this, and they sort of moved their money around in a way that proved it. Right. So do you feel any more certain about where we are in terms of what the sort of future of the art market is? Does it feel like, as we said, a lot of stability, a lot of middling feel about the whole thing? Do you feel any more able to predict how things are going to go? Do you think it's going to be like this for a long time? Do you feel it's just so ultimately dependent upon what goes on in the wider world that we can't really say what's next? My guess is that and people are not going to want to hear this, we should get used to this for a while. I'm not sure that we're going to be in this type of stretch for years to come, necessarily, but another six months, another year maybe, I don't know, that seems plausible to me. I think that what we've seen again this auction season is this kind of wild hope from people, and it's understandable, that, okay, we really have experienced some rough months here, And now here's this big event, and hopefully this is the thing that will get us back on track, get us back into the good times. And that hasn't happened, and I don't think that in another six months necessarily we're going to really see anything different. I think that we enjoyed an extended period of really, really healthy sales, and perhaps they were too healthy in a way, and they set expectations too high, and now... People are feeling some pain, some uncertainty, some anxiety. And when you're in a period like this, it tends not to reverse all that quickly. You kind of have to just sit with it for a while. And again, nobody likes to be uncomfortable for an extended period of time. But I'm not seeing a lot out there in the market right now that leads me to believe that a quick fix is in store anytime soon. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. As promised, some details on Sotheby's Now and contemporary sales. As Tim expected, no wormhole opened up and no money from an alternate dimension poured in. Our associate editor for the art market in the Americas, Carly Porterfield, reports that the sales brought in a combined hammer total of $261.5 million, or $305.7 million with fees, which was within the estimate range for the auction of $245.7 and $349.8 million without fees. Carly added that the sales were consistent with most of the rest of the season in generating, quote, only modest excitement along the way, a fitting conclusion to an autumn auction season that proved that the market remains relatively soft and selective. Again, of the 65 lots originally offered across both sales, 45 were guaranteed and 36 were backed by third parties. Among the rare notable prices were records for Judy Meritu and Mohamed Sami.
And you can read that and all of our auction reports at theartnewspaper.com or our app for iOS and Android. Coming up, the art of Central Eastern Europe between the 1960s and the 1980s and Terry Adkins at MoMA. That's after this week's news bulletin. There are growing tensions in the art world in relation to the Israel-Hamas war. Documenta, the major exhibition that takes place every five years in Kassel in Germany, has been engulfed in another anti-Semitism scandal after the writer Ranjit Hoskote resigned from the finding committee responsible for choosing the curator of the exhibition. Hoskote was accused of anti-Semitism because he signed a 2019 statement by the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Movement, or BDS, which aims to mobilise international support for Palestinian causes and put political pressure on Israel. In a letter to Documenta's new managing director, Andreas Hoffman, Oscote described the accusations of anti-Semitism against him as monstrous. Meanwhile, Listen Gallery has indefinitely put on hold an exhibition of works by the Chinese artist and activist Ai Weiwei, which had been due to open in London this week. It follows a now-deleted statement posted by Ai on social media in which he wrote that, quote, the sense of guilt around the persecution of the Jewish people has been at times transferred to offset the Arab world. The artist told the art newspaper that his show has effectively been cancelled, noting that the decision was taken, quote, to avoid further disputes and for my own well-being. Since the initial postponement, I Studio says that three further exhibitions at the Listen Gallery in New York and Gallery Max Hetzler in Paris and Berlin have also been cancelled. The National Portrait Gallery in London, or MPG, is facing criticism for accepting sponsorship from a law firm, Herbert Smith Freehills, that has represented British Petroleum, or BP. Last year, the MPG terminated its partnership with BP after more than 30 years, bringing to an end the oil company's controversial sponsorship of the gallery's annual Portrait Award. BP had sponsored the prize since 1990. The prize, for which the winner receives £35,000, will now be known as the Herbert Smith Freehills Portrait Award. The Guardian newspaper reports that the law firm has an oil and gas team whose clients include BP, Chevron and the China National Petroleum Corporation. A spokesperson for the environmental campaign group Extinction Rebellion reportedly said that by taking the firm's money, the National Portrait Gallery is, quote, helping to clean up the reputation of the lethal fossil fuel industry. And finally, Zuditu Gebriahanis, the director of Restore Trust, the pressure group that we discussed in our feature on the UK National Trust on last week's podcast, is stepping down. The decision follows the Trust's annual general meeting, held last weekend, in which the three councillors and two resolutions put forward by Restore Trust were emphatically rejected by members. Gebriahanis said she's leaving to focus on her position as a senior researcher at the Legatum Institute, a right-wing think tank based in London. To read these stories and much more, visit the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. The international auction house boasts unparalleled expertise in over 80 art and luxury categories. This November brings a full calendar of auctions. The online-only sale of 20th, 21st century Amsterdam celebrates the 75th anniversary of the groundbreaking Cobra movement, highlighting works by iconic figures such as Carel Appel, Corneille and Constant. Switching gears on the 29th of November at Christie's headquarters in London comes a fantastic live auction of the collection of the late Lord and Lady Sands which tells the story of one family spanning five centuries. From old master paintings, furniture and silver to Asian art and militaria, most of the works on offer were acquired or commissioned over a period of 450 years and remained at Ombersley Court, Worcestershire in the UK until 2017 when the house was sold. You can view these extraordinary works of art and more in person at Christie's in Amsterdam or London with free entry or start browsing now at christies.com. 
Welcome back. Now, the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis in the US has just opened the exhibition Multiple Realities, Experimental Art in the Eastern Bloc, 1960s to 1980s, which tells the complex story of artists active in East Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania and Yugoslavia in that period. With around 100 artists and 250 works across diverse media, including visual art, performance, film and music, the exhibition charts a generation working in societies with varying levels of state control and artistic freedom in communist Central Eastern Europe. The show is the most comprehensive survey of art made in this territory ever staged in the US and includes artists now firmly established internationally as well as underrepresented voices from the region. The exhibition is being staged at a moment when artists and curators in several countries in Central Europe are experiencing the highest levels of censorship and governmental pressure since the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. The curator of the exhibition is Pavel Pisch and I spoke to him about the show and the remarkable story it tells. Pavel, I imagine that this is an extremely difficult exhibition to organise because on the one hand, it's a lot of material, but then also, especially presenting it within the States and later in Canada, it's introducing an audience that may not know the geographies of the show very well. So there are multiple challenges. Tell me about how you conceptualise the show to sort of navigate that terrain, if you like. The first thing I would say is that this is by far the most collaborative endeavour I've ever undertaken, and it involved travel as well as symposia that were funded through a curatorial fellowship from the Andy Warhol Foundation. So from the very start, it was really about engaging many, many different voices, both in advance of the planning of the show, but also when I traveled to seven countries in Central Eastern Europe researching the exhibition. The exhibition is actually two shows in one. The main way that you experience the show is through four thematic chapters where we bring together artists and works from different times and different places. But there are also four spaces that we've been referring to as content rooms. And these provide images as well as text that ground the visitor with interpretive information about the social, political, ideological and cultural situation at the time. Right. So in other words, you're providing the kind of context that people can explore in different depths, I guess, in in the sense that they could come and see this show and just engage with the artworks and not have to engage with that context. But you're giving them the depth in case they really, really want to go right into it and, and, and explore it in full. That's exactly right. And actually, I was so surprised and happy to see there were a couple of young 20-year-olds sitting on the floor in one of the rooms, reading and fascinated. The first two rooms are much more about the macro history the other two rooms are about how that time and place impacted the lived experience and opportunities for artists. And I think one thing I would add here too is that we didn't want to really overemphasize the historical and political picture in the interpretation around the works. They often have many layers of meaning. And so to constantly speak about, for example, the events of the Prague Spring or the Hungarian Revolution in relation to a work that you're looking at risked the over politicization and over-determination of that historical context when looking at the work. That's really fascinating. Of course, the fact that it's called multiple realities is really important, isn't it? Because one of the things that you're clearly challenging is this sort of monolithic idea that is a common misconception of this part of the world in this period. Absolutely. And multiple realities was chosen to speak to essentially the asynchronicity of time and the highly diverse localized and unique experience that artists' works were facing in the countries that they were living in. So, for example, this 
very open liberal climate of Czechoslovakia in the mid-1960s comes to a swift end, of course, in 1968. But then in Hungary, which is not that far away, 1968, 69, 70, it was a time of great experimentation, a period full of vitality. So it's really speaking to that multiplicity in the region. And I was struck by the fact that the geographical diversity doesn't limit itself to the different nations that you're exploring. Because again, another misconception is that this was a part of the world that was cut off from other parts of the world. But you're talking about transnationalism. And of course, the fact that there were parts of the global south that were very accessible to people from these countries. That's right. And we really emphasise time and place repeatedly because it really changed so much. Even within a single country, of course, it would change so much depending on the time that you're discussing. But you're correct in one of the rooms that looks at networks of exchange, both within the block and outside. We have a little case study about mail art. We have a case study about artist-run spaces. But we also have a case study about the amazing history of the Wuch Film School in Poland and the Famu Film School in Prague. At each school, about 200 students between the 60s right through to the end of the Cold War from different places in the global south, often contexts that were deemed, let's say, ideologically aligned. Students came from those places, Cuba, Vietnam, China, Bolivia, and they came to learn essentially what was promoted as the rules of socialist cinema with the intention that they would go home and start their own film industries. So part of that is, again, about opening up expectations, subverting them and showing a slightly different story. Right. Tell us more about the engagement with or subversion of official and unofficial worlds, if you like. To what extent are some of these artists operating within the system and then subverting it quietly or even subverting it openly, but in a kind of quiet way, if you know what I mean? So tell us to what extent this is about sort of dissident artists or artists who are taking huge risks with their freedom. I think that in the West, let's say, whether that's North America or Western Europe, there is still an assumption that if you were not making work aligned with the expectations of the state at the time, that you were a nonconformist artist or a dissident artist. And that's not fully the story. What I love about many of the works in this show is that artists are being political in the most unpolitical ways, and they are smuggling meaning, often with a sly wink at the viewer. And so you have to peel the layers away to understand the political subversiveness. I'll give you an example. In the show, we have some really surprising woodcuts by a not-so-well-known East German artist, Jürgen Wittdorf. He taught drawing. He was commissioned by a sports academy to make a, a group of works that celebrate youth and sport. And so you have these images that are immediately legible in terms of socialist realism, the kind of proud macho male of the time, the bricklayer, for example. But within the imagery that he created, there is an undoubted homoerotic tone, which was taboo. And homosexuality was decriminalized in the late 60s, but it was not a subject that artists were really exploring. And so these prints are wonderful because they were actually on permanent view in the sports academy for many years. They had very wide reproduction in a youth communist journal, a great, great example of how this particular artist was operating within an official system, but still smuggling meaning in. Another great example of that is Julius Koller, the Slovak artist. 
He made very drab panoramas of Bratislava paintings, very kind of academic paintings that he would sell through the state-run store, a way of supporting himself, of course. But at the same time, he made crazy, incredible, radical, adventurous conceptual work, like, for example, establishing a gallery on a mountain range that was completely inaccessible, or taking over a gallery space and not showing any art, as it might be expected of at the time, but actually turning it into a place where people could come together and play ping pong. Something very light, very funny. But if you think about that, 1970, to bring people together to then create a set of rules by which they should behave, that is also very subversive. And I wanted to ask you about Gabriele Stürzer, an East German artist who was actually imprisoned, but made really important work, this work called Transiting, which it seems to me is a really remarkable work. And given what we might understand as the restrictions of freedom in her world. Okay. Tell us more about that. Of course. Gabriela Stützer emerged from the alternative spheres of Dresden and East Berlin. She was a kind of connected node for many punks, musicians, underground artists. And she was imprisoned at the Hoheneck Women's Prison for signing a petition that protested the stripping of Wolf Biermann of his citizenship in 1976. She created a really varied, very adventurous, interesting, rich body of work. And we have a few examples in the gallery, including this piece that you're referring to called Trans-Sitting. And so this is actually a grid of photographs in which we see a man trying on women's clothing. He's partially clothed, but he also appears naked, playing in drag, essentially posing for her camera lens. What is absolutely astounding is that the person that you see in these images is someone who had an alias called Winfried, he was actually a Stasi security operative who was tasked with observing Stutzer. And so isn't that great? You know, what a commitment on his part. But the work is really chilling because it then raises the question, well, who really is the voyeur? Who is doing the looking and who is actually the one that's being looked at? And this extraordinary sort of negotiation of trust between the artist and their model or the artist and their collaborator, it really unveils the sort of tensions inherent in that place, in, in that moment of history, right? Yes. And I think artists were negotiating this with, there are some works that are very somber and of course they reflect the gravity of the situation. But then there are also works that really operate with great irony and absurdity and humor. One of my favorites is Robert Rayfeld. There's a piece of mail art that he sent around, which essentially said, please do not think of me now. And so, you know, this kind of wonderful thing to imagine the person surveying the mail correspondence at that time coming across a direct jab at that person surveilling the artists. Yeah, that sort of idea of winking and smuggling that you were talking about earlier on. It seems to me that there would have to be a kind of established language of winks, if you like, that people would have in order to know, in order to get the references, to get that tone and so on. And so, and it would have been, I'd imagine, extremely sophisticated and also, I'm sure, different from place to place as in the way that you were talking about earlier on. Yes, and I think your point actually reminds me of something important to mention, which is that in organizing this exhibition, I was also very much thinking about, well, how can you break through these layers of essentially lack of knowledge? How can you curate this show so that the material is compelling, interesting, but also to some extent might already connect with things that Americans might know about? And so the choices, you will see some works that have a very recognizable hippie or pop or punk iconography. There are works that deal with technology and cybernetic experimentation and op and color and kineticism. 
it was also very purposeful that the selection in some ways spoke a little bit already to some recognized aesthetic languages and topics and themes that were familiar. But once you spend time with the material, I think it's very surprising because once you peel the layers, you start understanding a, a very different and complex context. Another interesting aspect is to what extent these artworks were shown, to what extent there was a kind of community, there was an audience for them, and to what extent they were sort of held back. Obviously, the answer is yes, all of those things. But can you give us a couple of examples of the ways in which the work was distributed? You talked about mail art, for instance, but also other forms. Were there actual exhibitions or was it much more informal in a way? I think informality is important. A lot of the work was made essentially for friends, not for large public viewing. And I think what we think about with art history today, given the time we live in with the internet and Instagram, is that we often think that art history is written in the present, and it really is not. You have many examples in this show which demonstrate that they don't get written into history much later. I want to mention a beautiful series of photographs by Jan Sagel called House Search. These are images of his apartment that he shared with his partner Zorka, an artist at the time. They're from 1973. Black and white images of essentially domestic bliss, you know, an unmade bed, a painting on an easel waiting to be finished, things around a kitchen. Very beautiful, quite simple images. But when you understand the context, it's really a different story. So they were part of the countercultural scene and the police were arriving at their friends' homes asking to search their homes. And Jan understood that their life was about to change. So he wanted to document that blissful, beautiful life they were sharing. He created these photographs he gave the negatives to a friend, and then that friend put them underneath the floorboards of their house. The floorboards were then covered during a renovation with concrete, and the negatives were lost. They're still there under that floor. But then another friend, Milena Cherna, she gave them back to Jan in the early 1990s, and he just kept them under a pile of books. It wasn't until 2012 that these works were actually seen and exhibited publicly. And so that is... 40 years after they were made. And there are many examples of this in the show where something is made, it goes away, and then it doesn't enter visibility. It doesn't get celebrated publicly until decades later. That's extraordinary. The visibility of these artists is really intriguing. There's obviously different levels. We have artists in the show like Sanya Vekovic and Gaeta Bercescu and Alina Shapochnikov who have now got quite widely established reputations. But... It seems to me that another goal of this project is to introduce an extraordinary range of artists who are still very much under the radar today. Of course, you can't expect all of these artists to suddenly be thrust into widespread attention. But is that one of the aims, to draw attention to the breadth of work that's being made there, as well as really propel some of these artists to a much more deserved audience? You know, That is all correct. And I think when you look at this time and place, you're essentially spoiled for choice. And yes, Shapochnikov, Bratescu, Ivekovic are let's say, canonical artists, although I would say they're not so canonical to a North American audience, which is also why they are in this exhibition. Mm -hmm. But they also have slightly, I would say, maybe deprivileged positions in the sense that I'm making room for many other artists who deserve that visibility. So Shapochnikov is very well known, but Maria Piniska Beres, Eva Kmentova, Teresa Murak, Teresa Tyszkiewicz, Gabriela Stutzer, whom you mentioned, Cornelia Schleimer, these are all artists who made really rich, exciting, varied work who deserve to be seen. Right. In the catalogue, there's this really important point that you make, I think, which is that 
you're presenting it in North America, where actually democratic institutions are being very, very heavily challenged at the moment. And our means of understanding this material today actually comes from a very complex situation. But of course, that's also true in many of these countries today. Artists in Hungary and Poland are experiencing extraordinary difficulties right now in getting their work made and showing it. Institutions in those countries are under threat. You know, there are people being put into position who have an ideological program deeply connected to right-wing governments. Is part of the project about, in a way, presenting the audience with material that actually does relate to their present as well as evoke a time in the past? Yes. And I think that one of the things the exhibition does is it shows that subversive material was always present in the region. There were always artists who identified as LGBTQ and were questioning gender roles, issues of sexuality, eroticism. And so I think it's also about writing those figures into the history more. I think imperial aggression in Central Eastern Europe is not a distant memory. It's very much a present reality given Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The show comes at a time when we have seen this persistent erosion of democratic processes. There has been a rise in autocratic nationalist discourses. There has been the stalling and reversal of civil liberties. We are facing increasingly invisible yet still highly repressive forms of control and surveillance. And I think what's so beautiful about many of the artists in this show is that they remind us of essentially art's powerful capacity, even in its quietest of forms, to challenge and subvert dominant powers. And many of the works in the show are really a testament to the vital role of friendship, solidarity, of being together, finding community and making it on your own and with friends. Pavel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure. Multiple Realities, Experimental Art in the Eastern Bloc, 1960s to 1980s, is at the Walker Art Centre in Minneapolis until the 10th of March 2024. It then travels to the Phoenix Art Museum in Arizona in the US from the 17th of April to the 29th of September next year, and then the Vancouver Art Gallery in Canada from the 2nd of November next year to the 23rd of March 2025. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. The fashion designer Grace Wales Bonner is the latest notable figure to select works from the collection of the Museum of Modern Art in New York in the series Artist's Choice. Among the works she selected for her exhibition, called Spirit Movers, is a major work by the American artist and musician Terry Adkins called Last Trumpet. Michelle Cuo is the MoMA curator who worked on the show with Grace Wales Bonner and she tells us more about the collaboration and Last Trumpet's significance within the show. You can see a picture of the work on our Instagram and in the web story for this episode. Michelle, before we come to talk about the work itself, tell us about Artist's Choice and why Grace Wales Bonner. Artist's Choice is an incredible series of exhibitions at MoMA that was actually started in the 1980s. And the first iteration was the designer and artist Scott Burton doing a Brancusi show. So MoMA invites an artist outside the museum, not a curator, to create a show out of works from MoMA's 
collection. And that has just resulted in some really special shows, both in terms of the selection, which you can imagine ranges from an IBM memory chip in the design collection to, of course, incredible works of art that we know and love. And different artists have done it. Architects have done it. Herzog and de Meuron did one. But no fashion designer has actually done one. So Grace Wales Bonner is an incredible designer based in London, but she's also someone who takes history and the archive very seriously. So I got to know her some years ago, probably around 2017, and she's just meteorically risen even in the years since then, but she always creates her designs and collections around very specific historical stories. Maybe it's the circle of James Baldwin in Paris in the 1930s, or marathon runners of African descent. So she's always looking at these very interesting communities and stories, and I thought she would be a perfect person to then come take that kind of archival sensibility and explore MoMA's collection this time. I think it's really interesting that Grace is, on the one hand, creating these collections like this recent Adidas collection, which has gone stratospheric, and then on the other hand is making museum shows. She seems to be a new kind of interdisciplinary figure in a way. Yes, she's very thoughtful and brings in literary, cultural and historical references all the time. She collaborates intensely with artists ranging from Carrie James Marshall to Lubaina Himid to Frank Bowling. But she's also the kind of designer to include a bibliography in the program notes for her fashion show, which to my mind is pretty unusual. And so it's just great. She's able to weave in all of these different interdisciplinary context. And that carries over to this exhibition where she's brought in books, scores for performance and music, and also artworks that are particularly situated at this strange nexus in between, say, sculpture and instrument or a painting and uh, something that almost looks like a musical score. And you couldn't have chosen a more appropriate artwork in terms of discussing those themes than Last Trumpet by Terry Adkins. Tell us about this work. So Terry Adkins's Last Trumpet is a set of four soaring sculptures. They're trumpets, but they're not quite. They're called archophones. This is a term that the artist Terry Adkins created for them. And they're really composites of different kinds of instrument components so that they create in aggregate a kind of 18-foot tall monumental set of sculptures that are also instruments. Adkins performed with them. The works are from 1992, but he would perform with them until the end of his life in 2014. And they were also a type of sculpture that he referred to as angel's horns, as if the heavens could hear them. So they also have this kind of magical capacity. And when you see them, they also have this kind of patina to the brass and the metal of these different components and instruments that he's sutured together. And so you really feel this lived history as well as literally a performance history (laughs) to these sculptures. 
Um, do tell us about the way that Adkins worked, because he would basically scavenge, wouldn't he? He'd find detritus, he'd find found objects, he'd bring them together. And then this is very much an example of him bringing those things together with the very particular thematic concern. And he was able to do this really delicately and sensitively with these found materials, wasn't he? Exactly. He was often creating works of art, whether they were sculptures or other kinds of media that were created from, as you say, these found objects, whether components of instruments or beautiful wood finishes. We have another sculpture in the show that's actually from the same year, 1992, called Synapse. And it essentially looks like a large abstract drum head, but it's actually stretched tight and painted gold on one side, and then this almost burnished metallic color on the other side. And it's abstract, so it hangs perpendicular to the wall, and it just looks like a large disc. And we've hung it actually quite high in these very tall ceilings in the gallery. So again, it kind of brings your eye upward and evokes an instrument. But of course, it's also a sculpture and Adkins played it as well. So there's always the idea that these objects that he creates had a past life. And he often used them in what he called recitals. These were performances that were also very deliberately often homages to historical figures, whether the abolitionist John Brown or literary figures or other kinds of mythical people that Adkins wanted to pay homage to. Last Trumpet is actually dedicated to his father, so it's a very personal resonance as well. He called them abstract portraiture, didn't he? Which I think is a very nice thing because they're very tangible objects. They're representational to a degree, but these objects actually represent people in some way. Yes, exactly. And and those are both the people that they're often explicitly made in homage to, but also the people that interacted with them. And Adkins was not the only person actually to interact with his sculptures and performance elements. He had a collective that was a kind of shape-shifting, loose group of musicians and performers called the Lone Wolf Recital Corps. And that was actually the subject, um, along with Adkins, of a great uh, small show here at MoMA in 2017 as well. So there's a, a great history at the museum too. You mentioned his father there, and there's all sorts of resonances in this work which Yes, speak to a homage to this great figure who's hugely influential, a musician himself, and therefore sort of bound up with the themes as that you mentioned earlier. But also a sense of because they are trumpets and you think about this idea of angels and the last judgment and so on, it's about his passing as well. So it's a very personal work in that sense, right? Absolutely. And I think for Adkins, he was thinking also about not only his father, but the ways in which family memories are in particular in the context of let's say, the Black radical tradition in America, that family context and that family history often is permeated by gaps, by absences, by histories that actually have been lost. So he was very devoted to the idea that he would somehow mark in memory and for time these people that were so dear to him. And of course, there's a sort of art historical resonance, isn't there? One can't help but think about Michelangelo's angels with trumpets in the Sistine Chapel. Absolutely. And um, Adkins actually lived in Europe for periods of time in Zurich as well as elsewhere. And he was traveling sort of peripatetically 
around the world. So he was constantly evoking different kinds of art histories, whether Renaissance art histories or actually histories of performance and the reclamation of found materials in Western Africa and Northern Africa as well. Um, so you get this hybrid of many different kinds of devotional rituals and performances woven into his sculptures and objects. And another sort of personal resonance is that, is it right that Terry Adkins kept this work until he died in 2014? So it was, as you say, used in performances repeatedly, but had that personal significance, not just the link to his father, but just the fact that it was there with him in his studio. As yes, was. yes, absolutely. And what's interesting about these sculptors in particular, too, is you'll see in this show that Grace has organised the trumpets are actually standing vertically. So they look like these soaring sculptures or monuments, but actually they've also been shown horizontally or tilted. And that evokes very directly their performative ability so that you could easily sort of pick them up and play them. And so in this case, it was interesting with Adkins's passing, but also this idea of how it might interact with other objects and Adkins's other sculptures in the show as well, we thought that this was a new way of presenting them. And, and they have a very different character, but it just shows you the versatility of these very, very dynamic works over time. Absolutely. And of course, there's this lovely thing that Terry Adkins said about wanting to make music that was as physical as sculpture and sculpture that was as ethereal as music. And you really feel that with this work, don't you? Absolutely. And he, with that quote, also always said that he was constantly searching for failure in a way that he said that he could never quite, of course, make sculpture as immaterial as music or music as palpable as sculpture, but that he was just always trying. And I find that a series of beautiful failures, such an incredible concept as well. And of course, that really directly links to what Grace Wales Bonner is trying to do with this whole collection of objects, right? Exactly. You'll see a kind of dazzling range of very, very different things. But throughout all of these objects is very much this interaction between the sonic domain, the visual domain, and the tactile domain. So these are things that often in the history of modern art in particular, don't always get surfaced. Modernism, as many know it, is a very visual enterprise. It privileges the eye. And so the objects in this show that Grace has chosen very deliberately always evoke being heard or worn or touched. And she has a great insight into why she was drawn to fashion herself, which is that she was very interested, as I've said, in histories and archival practices and research. But she thought, creating something like clothing that has such a direct, obviously, relationship to the wearer, when you put it on, you will have a direct contact with some kind of thought or idea or history. And you see that in all of the artworks in this show as well. And there's a really lovely text by Grace in the catalogue in which she's talking about that link between music and the spiritual or the divine. And it's clear that for her, these objects possess a kind of spirituality that is sort of somehow indefinable, very much like music to a degree. Yes, many of the works in the show have objects or components with past lives and histories. Other works have been used in rituals and recitals themselves, like Adkins's. Other works are made with a kind of meditative or repetitive motion. So there's a beautiful Agnes Martin gold leaf painting 
Wedding in the show that is hand-scored gold leaf. So you see this, what seems like a rectilinear grid, but actually, if you look up close, has this kind of trembling line from the hand-scoring, which also evokes writing or the kinds of musical scores that you'll also see in the show. But I think Grace refers to the constellation of objects as a kind of symphony, and I found that very beautiful as well. Often, still, artists are thinking of their practices as individual practices or individually authored works, and I think Grace is just so inherently collaborative that she sees this kind of collective production and has chosen objects that elicit this collective kind of vision as well. Michelle, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Ben. Artist Choice, Grace Wells Bonner, Spirit Movers, is at the Museum of Modern Art in New York from the 18th of November to the 7th of April 2024. And an artist's book accompanying the show, Grace Wells Bonner, Dream in the Rhythm, is published by MoMA and priced $65. And that's it for this episode. You can find us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Tan Audio, and on Facebook, Instagram and Threads. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Alexander Morrison and David Clack. And David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Tim, Pavel and Michelle. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.